Good morning. This morning's Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59. If you have the Bible with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59. I'll be reading from ESV, English Standard Version. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Verse 54, he also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Verse 57, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's word. A very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the elders at GBC. It's my joy to bring God's word to you today. I want to warmly welcome you for joining uh, as you join our service online, and especially to the folks on the third floor. How's it going down there? Uh, I'm imagining you guys sitting at your table, uh, and uh, wish we could be in this room together, and we will soon be, Lord willing. Uh, thanks, Deborah Wee. If many of you don't know Deborah Wee, that was Deborah Wee. Uh, she gave us a good summary of our sermon today, uh, stressing the importance of choices we have to make to follow Jesus. That's what being a disciple of Jesus means, following Him. Last week, we welcomed 10 new members as they did just that, and they were in the pool behind me on the, on, down there. Uh, and three of them, actually three of them, sorry, came through baptism and they gave us a very visible picture of just that. I think Pastor Ian, with his uh, rusty gloves and his mask, uh, he asked them two questions. He said, have you trusted in Christ and repented of your sins? And is it your desire to follow Christ as Lord all the days of your life? Well, we are actually in a section in the Gospel of Luke that is all about following Jesus in the here and now. From Luke 9 to 19, Jesus is traveling with his disciples along the way on the road to Jerusalem. And he has been dealing with various topics that we've been looking at together. Hypocrisy, I think you saw that just now in the children's video. Uh, prayer, praying the Lord's Prayer. Money, anxiety. And most recently in chapter 12, Jesus has been speaking about the future. In the days to come, Jesus says, the master will be taken away from his disciples and then he will return. 
And Pastor Eugene reminded us that we who are disciples of Jesus must be future ready. With our loins girded up, I think we remember that image of of a man tucking his long robe into his belt as he gets ready to run, ready for the return of Christ. And when he returns, he will call us to account for what we have done with the life on loan to us. But as we wait for the future, what do we do in the present? How should we understand this present moment? Uh, We recently celebrated Children's Day, I think that was on the 2nd of October, and uh, reminded me of the time where I had to, uh, uh, you know, part, as part of my job, <laughs> organize Children's Day celebrations when I was a teacher. And when I was a teacher, the most powerful question I, I, I had in my arsenal, the most powerful question I ever had was this one. I would go up to the students when they were misbehaving and I would say to them, what should you be doing now? What should you be doing now? And, and, and that question has an enormous amount of power. It, it, it forces the child to kind of snap out of the dream that they are in and their, and their emotions. And, and you can, I'm sure many parents, uh, you, you know the power of this question, what should you be doing now? Uh, it just reminds us of priorities and how we ought to reorient those priorities uh, even right now. Uh, friends, how would you answer that question? This is not just a sermon device to get you to think and reflect. No, I, I really like you to pause, if you can, uh, if you, whether you're at home or whether you're downstairs, and think for a minute. What should you be doing now? Well, maybe, uh, you know, normally you make that decision on the basis of who's nearby and who's around you and who reminds you of the priorities from their life. Maybe parents are reminded about how they have to deliver whoever to wherever to do whatever. Or if you're a worker, you're thinking about the tasks you need to achieve on your in and out tray. Or perhaps it's determined really by authority figures who tell you what you are to do right now. Or if you're on a staycation, well, honestly, you don't know, what, you don't know how to answer that question. So the bed is probably a good place to stay. And that's what tends to happen if you're on staycation. You just stay in bed. But it's a serious question. How would you answer this question? Trying to move my slides. Hmm. Well, our passage today deals with just this question. Uh, And Jesus helps us answer what we should be doing right now. And if you're taking notes, three headers will take us through. The present purpose that Jesus has, the present sign of the times, and the present response he calls us to. I I invite you to join with me in prayer as we prepare to hear God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that in this hour, that our ears would hear Christ's voice, that our hearts would submit to him, that my lips would speak of him, and that our eyes, together by faith, would behold him. We pray this for his glory and in his name. Amen. Well, verses 49 to 53 of our text, Jesus tells his disciples plainly what his goals, purposes, and focuses are. Well, to put it very simply, Jesus' way of answering this question 
of what he is to be doing right now in our text is that he is to finish his father's work, that work of the cross. That work of the cross is the task his father gave him, and that would be so significant that every human being on earth will have to make up their mind about what that means. Let me say that again. Jesus' way of answering the question is to finish his father's work of of the cross, which will be so significant that every human being must make up their mind about how to respond. Uh, In Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and the cross. And here in chapter 12, Jesus says it this way, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Casting fire, baptizing, a bapti- baptism to be baptized with. Whoa, this, is tr- this is Chim. Uh, what does it mean? Imagine the shock of his disciples uh, as they hear Jesus say, I came to do this and I wish it were done and I'm distressed until it's finished. Well, Jesus' work, he says, is casting fire. Now, there are some differences as to how we are to read this specifically. Uh, Good and godly men have slight differences, and there are three main possibilities. Let me tell you what they are. First, one possibility, this fire could mean the judgment that Jesus wants to pour out on the earth, God's righteous, good judgment against sin and evil. Possibility two, this fire could be the spread of the gospel, like a fire that goes out to the nations, kindling and growing and, and being inflamed all over the earth. And three, the third possibility, is talking about the fire of Pentecost that will come about later in the book of Acts. Well, I take the view of the latter. Uh, Most likely he is speaking of Pentecost, which Jesus is so eager to see as the Holy Spirit is poured out on believers. Now, why do I say that? Let's look at some texts. Well, earlier on in Luke's gospel, in Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says that Jesus is the one who will baptize his, his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is the one who will hold a great winnowing fork. That is what uh, farmers use to, to sift and toss their, their, uh, uh, st- their straw and hay to separate wheat from chaff. And that's the language that's used in Luke 3 as the same language that's used here. Baptism, fire, dividing between believers and unbelievers. In Luke 11, Luke also tells us that our good Father in heaven cannot wait to give us the good gift of the Spirit, 11.13. And it is also Luke in his sequel in Acts who describes the Holy Spirit descending on believers as tongues of fire in the early church, showing the visible sign that God is with his people. So it makes sense that Jesus is excited, anticipating, longing for this kindling of fire on his disciples. Now, it's also clear from our passage that this great kindled fire will be the result of the baptism of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, his death is always what baptism means. His death on the cross is always what his baptism means. Baptism is to immerse or to submerge someone, and that's the picture of dying. So, and Jesus is talking here about the death he is to come. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I have a death that I need to die. 
I have a work that I need to complete, given to me by my Father. And until it is accomplished, I am in great distress, the Lord Jesus says. A brief aside to us, uh, that this symbol of baptism pointing to the death of Jesus is why we Baptists ought to be uh, very glad whenever we see a baptism because we have a physical reminder of what Jesus went through in his death and how by faith we join him in that same death. As we by faith see that, that individual go down into the water, we should rightly think of ourselves dying with Christ and then strong hands lifting you out of the water, reminding you of the resurrection power that is in Christ and now ours by faith. Friends, we had this privilege last week to be ministered in this way. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I love baptisms because I remember that feeling of going down and being lifted up. And, and that is no better picture of the Christian life. But there is one more component to Jesus' purpose not only is he committed to this baptism that will result in the kindling of fire, there is one more thing. Jesus' baptism into death will produce division. What Jesus does at the cross will lead to a huge separation between humanity. Some will respond to him and some will not, and the world will be divided about him based on how they respond. Jesus says that in households of five, there will be two, three, three, two divisions between all types of family relationship variants. And he goes to, he, he lists them, and then he reverses some of them to show you just the extent of this division. It will be a full division. It, it doesn't matter which position you occupy, whether you, are the, the, the pri whether you have the prestige of being the older person or the younger person, it's division regardless, because that is how full the division will be. Now, if you read the fire, sorry to go back to the controversy, but, the, but if you read the fire as the fire of the Holy Spirit poured out on believers, then that gift of the Holy Spirit will separate true believers who have him from believers, from unbelievers who do not. If you take the view that the fire is God's righteous judgment, this will be the fire that separates those who repent of sin from those who do not. If you take the view that the fire is the flame of the gospel going out to the nations, that same gospel will separate those who accept it from those who do not. Regardless, it is clear that the death of Jesus will lead to this kindled fire that will result in division in the world. Now, this could be a shock to us if we are reading the Gospel of Luke, because at Christmas time, I'm pretty sure we quote Luke and the song of the angels who say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And again, if you have done your, your memory verses to the Bible, you'll know Romans 5 verse 1, a very famous verse that we sing in song, right? Therefore, being justified by faith, you know that song? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says, Romans 5. But, so yes, it is true that we have peace with God and with one another, and we cannot but have peace in our hearts with our unbelieving friends the way, and our neighbours. But in what sense then does Jesus mean 
uh, that he will bring division, not peace. Well, if you go back to Luke 2, there was an old man, the prophet Simeon, who told Jesus' mother that her son was to be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You remember these cryptic words? Because of Jesus, the old Simeon said, as he looked upon that baby, he said, this child is going to cause some to fall, some to rise. The world will divide about this Jesus. And although he will be the child of peace, bringing the gospel of peace, he will bring division. You see, there will be those who reject this child, and there will be those who fall at his feet and worship him. And how we respond to him reveals what is in our hearts. The one who says, I need no savior. I stand on my own merit. I will take my chances with what I can do with my life. And those who say, I know I've made a mess of mine. I desperately need this savior. Friends, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Now, this text is not a call for us to go and fight with our unbelieving family members or to cut them off. It's not, okay? And in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul tells us, Christians must have good relationships with our families. We must provide for them and their needs. We must care for them. We are to love our unbelieving family members, pray for their well-being and salvation, honour our fathers and mothers, Ephesians 6 verse 2, a word that comes with a promise. Let's be very clear about this. But the Lord Jesus is telling his disciples that because of the cross, because of the Holy Spirit, there will be rejection of you in the world, even as some are rejecting Christ. The world will be split on him. Do not be surprised. One dear sister in the church comes to mind. When she trusted in the Lord, she was the first in her family to do so. And when she did, she was essentially disowned. And she, she would come home from church on Sundays and she would not be allowed to sit at the dining table and join her family. She had to sit in the kitchen where she would cry into her food. Or maybe you know uh, someone like this, or maybe you've had that experience yourself. As you've come to the Lord Jesus, you find that others are separating from you. Friends, all around the world, there are brothers and sisters rejected for Christ's sake, bearing up his name as martyrs and those persecuted for the gospel. This is because Jesus has come to bring division But the Lord knows what it feels like to be divided from those who don't share what we believe. In Matthew 19, Peter tells Jesus, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What a great question. And Jesus says in verse 29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
Oh, Christians, we need to know that there will be a real divide and rejection will come so that we will not be thrown off and discouraged if it happens. If we are not prepared, we may wonder if God is good or if he's in control. We may doubt God if we see others, our brothers, our sisters, our sons or our daughters, reject the gospel. There will be people who are unresponsive in our families. And I know this is a sensitive subject because we love our families, including those who have not responded to the gospel, and that's what makes it so hard. But friends, we need to brace for impact. If this describes you right now and these words have cut you or hurt you, I want to encourage you, stand for Christ in your family. Wait for gospel opportunities. Be faithful in evangelism. Mindful of your witness. If you feel rejected for Jesus' sake, remember Jesus. He knows what it is like to be baptized with that baptism of the cross. And he has the wounds to show for it. But the scriptures promise us that we have a true family in the church. As it says here in Matthew 19, that's why our church takes membership very seriously. And we're trying to take it more seriously. This is something we need to work on, all of us. That we are joined to Christ and therefore joined to one another. Membership is not an insular, exclusive club mentality, but it is important for us to know who we are. This is so that we can treasure one another because God has placed us together and joined us one to another. This is much harder to do in COVID-19 because we are separated. So it may not feel as if we are joined together, but we can work hard at it and be very creative. Last week, the pastors invited us to write emails to our 10 new members and welcome them. If you go online, you can still find their testimonies. You can still find their emails. You can still do it in the second week. Uh, that's fine. Go ahead and do that if you'd like. But I chanced across an email that someone actually sent. Um, and, and I was very, very encouraged by it. And I would like to read some excerpts of what this anonymous church member wrote. This is the member. I am seeking to apply the injunctions from Pastor Eugene's sermon this morning by sending an email to all of you. Thank you for your personal stories. Each is precious and special to the Lord and to us too. GBC is a great place to be at. And we are thankful and grateful to the Lord for this big family that we are part of. In this pandemic, you all warm our hearts and others too. Our prayers are with you all. Just an excerpt. But what a blessing. This member went on to encourage others, to encourage the new members to join a CG so that they can feel this in a more tangible way. That's what the church is. Those who have been baptized into Christ's baptism received his Holy Spirit, a kindled fire, and joined together as one, 
across one, spirit-filled, separate from the world kind of family. Well, turning to the crowds around him, Jesus speaks to them about the present sign of the times or the opportunity of this moment. What will these crowds do? Where will they line up on this division? What will they decide? Well, Jesus gestures at the sky and says, you guys are a bunch of great meteorologists, but maybe not so much uh, spiritual meteorologists. He uses a word for time in verse 56, which does not refer to chronological time, but the time of opportunity, like a season or an era that we are to take advantage of. And Jesus says to them, you know how to read the earth and sky, but not this present window of opportunity. And I really like the argument he makes, so if I get a bit excited, you know why. Well, two analogies Jesus makes. First, he says, there are clouds that rise in the west, and these clouds, wet, moist, they come, from the, they come across the cool hills of Palestine and they come. And so as they're coming, you, can, you know rain is going to come the next day. Uh, there's a very cool Old Testament illustration in 1 Kings 18 of this. Uh, basically there, God promises that drought will end and rain is going to come. And uh, the prophet Elijah prays for rain. And then he tells his servant, okay, you go. And then you're going to look for this little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea as a sign that heavy rain is going to come. The same logic Jesus employs here. and He says, you can see the cloud coming and then so you get your umbrellas out or you stay indoors and you do what you need. A second analogy, he says, the south wind blowing, which means the desert wind comes up to you and, and you feel that wind coming from this direction, which is the desert. So you know it's going to be hot the next day and so it is. Now these arguments Jesus make are basically this. Y'all are very sensible, reasonable people. You use your minds when it comes to observation and conclusion. You make hypotheses, you test them, and then, you, and then you, you, you act. So why don't you do the same to spiritual matters? Well, Jesus' argument is fascinating because he applauds them for being intelligent and reasonable and does not say that when it comes to faith matters, just trust God, just believe, turn off your brain and, and just go spiritual. No, he argues be more reasonable, not less. Christianity is not a thoughtless, mystical religion. No, we must be thoughtful and reasonable as we look at the truth claims, test them, and conclude. Well, friends, if you're a skeptic about Christianity, or maybe you're a family member forced to watch this, this sermon, and you're skeptical about the claims of the Christian faith, friends, if that's you, and nobody has ever told you that Christianity makes reasonable, thoughtful claims, I'd really like to invite you to write to the church office and please get in touch with me if you're willing. I'd love to have lunch with you and just talk a bit about how Christian, how Christian faith is reasonable. But what, what does Jesus mean by he wants his audience to be reasonable in how they interpret the times? Well, some context is necessary. A few weeks ago, Pastor Oliver uh, described the spiritual attitude of the audience Jesus is currently facing. So some background is necessary. 
And the crowds had seen that Jesus had been working healings and exorcisms in his ministry, but Luke writes that they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven because they wanted to test him. They denied his divinity, and they were, they were preferring to just kind of keep their options open. So there, were, there was evidence in front of them, but they were unwilling to conclude. Uh, in fact, they, they, they tried another hypothesis that the work Jesus was doing was the work of Beelzebul, uh, 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 not God, not Yahweh, not the God of Israel. Uh, in other words, they were very fascinated by Jesus, but they were not willing to commit to him. They were not willing to make that decision. They wanted to be Christian-ish, but not too Christian, so that they could hedge their bets. Well, Jesus was calling, but they weren't picking up. But they weren't cutting the call either. I remember the words of Simeon, that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Well, here in Luke 12, Jesus says that when we twist reason to suit our own preferences, freedom, autonomy, and independence, we're being hypocritical. When it, become, when it comes to interpreting earth and sky, they'll be decisive and insightful and wise, but not when it comes to spiritual matters. Friends, I wonder if you or I would be the kind of person on the end of Jesus' rebuke. Whether you're a Christian or not, I wonder if today, if there's a spiritual opportunity in front of you, you'll take it? Or will you wait? Well, what has the Lord been saying to you in 2020? Well, what is this moment that we have right now? Well, here in October, we are 10 months into the church's plan to embark on a theme called Radical Dependence. Thanks, Pastor Ian, for this theme. The logo is right there. Last year, it was grace together when we studied Romans. And if you think about it, uh, you know, we had a camp last year, we were really together and everything. And imagine if we had chosen to be grace together this year. Very difficult. <laughs> Very difficult to be grace together in COVID-19. But God's wisdom and timing are perfect. So we said we wanted to learn radical dependence, and here we are. Friends, I know it's just a theme, but it's something that we wanted to do together. We've been doing this together all year long. We've said that we want to learn radical dependence. How are we doing? I came across this humorous, or maybe not so humorous, very American-centric recap of 2020, but I, it was so funny. I just, so I'm just going to give you the highlights. I, I removed the sensitive bits just to make it safe. So this is the summary of 2020. You, you tell me, radical dependence, you tell me. Australia basically burned to the ground. 10 millions of acres are gone. 1 billion animals are dead. An Iranian general was killed by a drone. Almost led to World War III. A bat, a bat virus transmitted to human beings and went loose all over the world. So now lots of people don't have jobs. Economies are tanking. Governments are bailing out businesses. We have to wear masks everywhere. Countries are in quarantine. Singapore had a circuit breaker. The curve was flattened. They tried to impeach the US president. One of the greatest basketball players passed away in his youth. Mulan was a disaster. British royalty decided to be commoners. Harvey Weinstein went to jail. In February, the UK left the EU. Massive protests against the American justice system. Complaints of police brutality against ethnic 
against African Americans, violent riots on the street, locust swarms devastating Africa and South Asia, Ebola outbreak in Africa, difficult general elections in Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, and the US to come, an economic crisis on the horizon, and the American president and first lady have COVID. Friends, when it comes to political choices, market choices, investment choices, you're probably better at reading the science than I am. And like the weather, we can read it pretty well. But when it comes to the spiritual significance of this moment, I really wonder whether you can see that God is ripping up the idols of this world right now to show that there is no true security, no true safety but Him. Hear the words of Isaiah 43, written hundreds of years before Christ. All the nations gather and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and the servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So if we, like Jesus' audience, face this present time, this present sign of the times, for our immediate current spiritual response. Well, what exactly should it be? Verse 57, Jesus urges his hearers to judge for themselves what is right or to do what is truly right. Right. Now, the word right Jesus uses is the Greek word dikaios, which is a guy from my small group, uh, which means righteous, it means to observe divine laws. It means to keep the whole commands of God. Dikaios, that's what your name means. Uh, Jesus gives his followers a practical call to do what is righteous in response to reading the weather, the spiritual weather. Do what is right. Respond to him immediately without delay. So how? Well, the story is told of a man in a court case before his accuser. He owes him a great debt, and he is at risk of being taken to the judge, and prison awaits him if he cannot pay what he owes. Jesus tells this story to show what we ought to do. This man has a choice. For this debt that he owes, Jesus says, find a way to settle with your accuser right now. Why face him as an enemy and then go to court, face the judge, face the officer, and end up in prison. Why not humble yourself now and do everything you can to plead for his mercy? In other words, if you are hearing the message of Jesus Christ right now, settle matters with him. Settle matters with the judge. Friends, each one of us is like this man in debt before God. We owe him everything. We have run off with our lives, defiantly rejecting him, and we all run the risk of facing him as both debtor and judge. But he has given us a way of escape to settle matters through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the response must be ours, and it must be ours today. 
The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is that favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you have the opportunity to hear this message, then today is your day. In Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. And friends, in case we think that this is just a message for unbelievers, it's not. It's not just a message for unbelievers. Hebrews 3 makes it clear. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Do you notice how this message is for brothers? If you've made a profession of faith 10, 20 years ago, and you cling to the safety net of attending church, having Christian friends, but actually hiding an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care. What does that look like? It looks like a coldness towards knowing God. It looks like being in the realm where scripture is read, but it never goes in. It looks like distrust, cynicism towards God and the good promises he gives. It looks like disinterest and apathy towards spiritual things. It looks like the reluctance to be honest about where we are. It looks like the fear of man, which Pastor Eugene shared with us. We are worried about what others think of us. And we are not worried about what God thinks of us. It looks like being self-deceived. And in our conflicts with others, others are the problem. But me, let's not talk about me. Friends, every day you and I are not beyond this having an evil, unbelieving heart where we hear God's word but we do not believe Him. Well, this text tells us, exhort one another. Exhort, encourage, speak to, tell the truth to one another as long as it is called today so that no one may be hardened by that deceitfulness of sin. Oh, friends, that's why we need one another. And that's why we need the gospel. We need one another to bring the gospel to us. We need to hear again that this gospel is not about your failures. It's not even about your successes. It's got nothing to do with you, actually. It's got to do with Christ. And when we stand before him, and when we say, Jesus, all I bring in my hands are my sin and my failures, and even my best days are filthy are filthy before you. I need you, Jesus. 
When we say that to him, oh, then our hearts are tender. And when do we need to do that? We need to do that today. That's why he was baptized into death for us. That's why he sent his spirit like a fire on us. That we would respond to him. That we would bow the knee, having settled matters with our judge. Well, the great hymn writer, John Newton, known for his amazing grace, we know him for that. Well, we also know he was a slave trader. Uh, he spent most of his life plundering and selling human beings for money, a truly damnable industry. Well, after he turned to Christ, he became a pastor. And, and the best thing about John Newton, actually, is not Amazing Grace. The best thing about John Newton are the letters he wrote as a pastor. And he wrote the most moving, just wonderful letters. And I, and I want to read to you a letter from, uh, from March in 18... Eh, in what is this year? 1767, I, my bad. Seven, 1867, my wrong century. Uh, and he writes it on the basis of Romans 5, verse 20, which says, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. This is what he wrote. You have one hard lesson to learn. He's writing to his... his uh, church member, you have one hard lesson to learn, the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it is needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. The more you know him, the better you will trust him. The more you trust him, the better you will love him. The more you love him, the better you will serve him. Do not be surprised to find yourself poor, helpless, and vile. All whom God favors and teaches will find themselves so. So, <clears throat> the more grace increases, the more we shall see to abase us in our own eyes. I hope what you will find in yourself by daily experience will humble you I will not discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Friends, I invite you to join me in prayer as we respond to God, the one who is full of present mercy. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that we hear your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to read scripture and to have your Holy Spirit, like a searching fire, move through our hearts. Because of the baptism with which Jesus was baptized, we've been separated from the world. Oh, but gracious God, we know and recognize that in our hearts, sometimes we are spiritually unreasonable before you. And we push off the need to settle spiritual matters with you. And maybe we push it to others. Maybe we would rather harden our hearts. Oh, Father, I pray that today, none who hears this word 
would resist you and rebel against you in our hearts. Help us to be tender and receptive to you, to honestly evaluate where we are in our walk with you. So we invite you, God, to show us and humble us even now. Show us that our sins are many. And yet, even today, your mercies are more for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have one great friend who shows us so much kindness that he would die on the cross for our sins. Those sins that nailed you there, we confess now before you. We stand on the assurance now that through Christ, our sins are forgiven. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.